Hey everyone, this is Chris. I just wanted to say thanks to those of you who took the time to listen to the rebroadcast of my 10-year-old or 10-plus-year-old episode of uh, 15 Albums for 15 Friends in 15 Minutes, Part 1. Today I will present Part 2, and I hope you enjoy it. Hello again, everybody. This is Chris, and welcome to Part 2 of 15 Albums in 15 Minutes for 15 Friends. In Part 1, we covered the first five albums that I had on my list by bands and uh, musicians such as the Steve Miller Band, Metallica, Marshall Crenshaw, Robert Gordon, and the Ramones. And in this segment, the next five on the list are equally eclectic, and I hope for you equally, if not more, enjoyable. We're going to get started with the band Kiss, and the album that made my list was called Destroyer. It was their fourth studio record came out in March of 1976. Now KISS was a very big band in my life. It always has been. I've, I've, it's one of the first bands that I followed from pretty much when they started in the early 70s. And um, up until the time Destroyer had come out, they had recorded three studio records which were uh, at some point later referred to and repackaged as the originals. They were strong records but they weren't overwhelming commercial successes. The band had, had grown in popularity, but a lot of what sold the band was not just their music, but their mystique. They had worn makeup, and they, they were doing things that not, not too many other people in the music business had done. So they got a lot of attention. Uh, unfortunately, they, they were critically panned as you know just people trying to get by on, on, a, on, a, on a mystique and on a gimmick, as opposed to on musical talent. Over the course of time, they built a loyal fan base, which is affectionately referred to as the Kiss Army, and uh, they just began to grow exponentially. They recorded a live album after the first three records, which, again, was somewhat commercially successful, but most of the popularity of the band or the uh, publicity around the band was based on negative press. A lot of the rumors around the first live album was that the version that was released on a record was overdubbed and fixed in the studio, which the band does acknowledge to some extent. Anyway, let's move along. I don't want to start. I'm, I'm a big fan of the band Kiss, and I can get really into uh, the history of the band and make this a whole Kiss documentary if I really <laughs> don't be careful. Destroyer was released in March of 76. It was the first Kiss album I ever owned. I got it later that year at the same time as their follow-up record, which was called Rock and Roll Over. It came out only eight months later. Back in those days, it wasn't uncommon for a band to release two albums in a single year. Now it's unheard of. Some of the things that were landmark to the career of Kiss about the Destroyer record, it was the, the it yielded their first top ten single, the song Beth, which you've heard in the background for the last couple of minutes. And um, it was their first platinum record. It was the first record that they've released that had used outside musicians. There was a, an orchestra on there. There was a children's choir. And it was way more produced than any of their previous records. But really, I think the thing about the record that does it for me is the, the songs. I mean, it, it comes down to the music for me. The, the, the record opens with Detroit Rock City, which is a song that opened up much of their live shows for, for a very long time. Just that that guitar piece 
at, at the beginning, the band and 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 I mean, just listen for yourself. Chorus. I think the thing about this record that really brought them to another level was the anthemic nature of the songs that would later translate extremely well when they released the live too, which was wildly successful in comparison to their previous stuff. Prior to this record, only Rock and Roll All Night, which was on their third studio record, had been had had that anthemic quality, and while the other songs are still very strong rock and roll songs and translated well into into concert, in my opinion, uh, they they lacked that one piece that really makes it. Uh, I, I don't know how to continue that sentence, so I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm going to leave it to you to figure it out, and uh, hopefully you get what I'm saying. Anyway, the song I'm going to play for you today is. A wildly anthemic song. It's one of those songs uh, in concert that uh, is very, uh, very much uh, an audience participation song. This is Shout It Out Loud.
So did you get the required amount of fist bumping in? You're supposed to at the end of that song. The whole shout it, shout it. If your fists aren't bumping, you got to go back and do it again. <laughs> so the next album on my list, a classic, Bruce Springsteen's Born to Run. And if I was smart, I'd probably just stop talking, play the song I want to play, and move on. Because I could probably talk for dozens of hours about Springsteen. I'm such a huge fan. I first saw him on the Born in the USA tour back in 84. Saw him twice on that tour, and I've seen him pretty much every tour since. And I just can't say enough things about him. So why don't we start with the music? This is the opening track off the Born to Run album. Summer praying in vain 
question one of the most perfect songs ever written, performed, and recorded, Thunder Road by Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. It's the opening track on the Born to Run album. The album in its entirety, there's just not a bad breath on that record. Everything's good about it. But I want to talk a little bit about Bruce Springsteen and my life. <laughs> that sounds so ridiculous. <laughs> So the first time I saw him was August 20th, 1984. The, re- the reason I know that is because I know that it was the last show at the uh, what was then called the Brendan Byrne Arena in the Meadowlands on that tour. Evidently, I did a little bit of research. There were more, sh- more shows on the first, that leg of the tour, and then they went on to do two, three, or four legs of that tour, something like that. I know that... They eventually got back to Giant Stadium, where I saw him again on that tour. Now, my memory isn't brilliant on a lot of things, but I do remember the show being particularly long. And in those days, Springsteen was still known for playing some pretty long sets. I, I actually was able to dig up a set list online, and there were 32 songs, and I'm going to run them down, just because I was there, you know what I'm saying? Uh, Born in the USA, Out in the Street, Spirit in the Night, Atlantic City, Johnny 99, Highway Patrolman, I'm Going Down, Darling in County, Glory Days, The Promised Land, My Hometown, Darkness on the Edge of Town, Badlands, Thunder Road, Hungry Heart, Dancing in the Dark, Cadillac Ranch, 10th Avenue, Freeze Out, No Surrender, Cover Me, Prove It All Night, Pink Cadillac, Growing Up, Bobby Jean, Backstreets, Rosalita, Jungle Land, Two Hearts, Drift Away, Born to Run, The Detroit Medley, Do You Love Me? and twist and shout. There's a little note on there. It says, Little Stephen and Miami Horns guest. Said to be one of the best shows of the tour. <laughs> it, uh, it really is just, uh, was an amazing show. I remember being, I think it was Jungle Land or Rosalita. There was just, it must have been 15 minutes of Springsteen yapping, just talking. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what the hell are you saying at this point in my life, to be honest with you. I'd have to go back and listen to some of the old live stuff. But he used to really just go on these crazy things, telling stories, bringing Clarence into it. It's just, uh, it's, if you've never seen Springsteen live and you get a chance, go. It's just not going to keep going on forever and ever. The shows aren't marathon sets anymore. But the guy just puts out. Let me tell you, it's just, he's really spectacular. One of my favorite albums of all time, quite possibly one of the most perfect albums of all time, Born to Run, Bruce Springsteen of the E Street Band. I think in closing on Springsteen, one of the things that I'd uh, invite you to, to do, if you haven't already done it, because I don't, I don't think that people think about this in terms of Springsteen so much as his iconic stature as a, as a performer uh, and a, a songwriter, but the arrangements of his music are really quite extraordinary. Every particular instrument and sound in its place, and they're done in such a way that it doesn't seem so polished. But think about the arrangements next time you listen to Springsteen. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. And with that, we're going to move on to the next album on the list, and that is the album Boston by the group Boston. 
Like so many records and so much music in my life, my first exposure to the Boston record was through my good buddy Danny O'Connor in the uh, East 28th Street alleyway. The song you're listening to in the background is more than a feeling, the opening track to the record. Really spectacular musicianship in this band and capped off by the lead vocals of the late Brad Delp. Very tragically took his own life. Oh, what was it, a year or two ago? But this guy had range as good, if not better, than just about any rock and roll singer ever. Tom Schultz, the brainchild behind this band and lead guitar player, interesting guy. I believe he was an MIT grad and an engineer. I know that he invented several gadgets, uh, one of them that is called a rock man. And they're used for musicians. I'm not a all fancy into that stuff. I'm, I'm not really too up on it. I just know he's like a brainiac as well as uh, a, a really amazing musician. The thing that pisses me off sometimes is you hear a record like this and it's so friggin' amazing. And they had a follow-up record which was not quite as extraordinary as this one. And then a couple years afterward had a third record which was, again, good, but didn't quite match up to this one. But then they were done. You know, you, you just didn't hear from me. You weren't sure if it was because Tom Schultz was lazy or there was egos involved or whatever it was. And then I stop and think, well, you know what? This is a pretty amazing record. I can live with this record. There are a lot of bands out there. How many bands out there can you think of, or musicians that you think of that you can listen to, and over the course of their career just start putting out crap? And you think, boy, I'm just going to listen to that old stuff anyway. Listen to this part. Listen to the way Schultz makes his guitar sing. No filler here. It's eight songs. I don't know how long the whole thing is, maybe 40 minutes or so. But there's no wasted space on this record at all. It's just great. I'm going to let this play on for a few seconds in the background, even though the volume's down because I'm talking over it. I know in support of this record, they played a concert at Brooklyn College and my good buddy Danny O'Connor got to see them, and I think the tickets were really cheap if I remember uh, correctly, Danny. Anything? <laughs> I should have got you on the horn to, to be a guest on this uh, podcast. As this song comes to a close, I am going to play another song off this record for you in its entirety called Hitch a Ride. And one of the reasons I chose that song is because it's less than 11 minutes long. But also, it's really a great example of a, of a pure rock and roll song that is also a pure pop music song. And I think it's just a, a brilliantly crafted song 
The instrumentation is great, the production is great, the arrangement is great, and Brad Delp on vocals is nothing short of miraculous. Enjoy it.
It isn't one of the better-known songs on the record, but it's a fantastic song. It perhaps should be. The whole record's really good, though, as all of these records I picked are, obviously. <laughs> Next one on the list is by Steely Dan, and it's the album Asia. This was my first exposure to the band Steely Dan in a long form. I had heard their songs and heard their music, you know, from the radio and all that kind of stuff. But this was the first album I ever bought, and the the two things that kind of drew me toward it, one, uh, as part of the new drinking game that I've created for all of you, the how many times can I mention Danny O'Connor in one podcast series game. <laughs> uh, Danny O'Connor was a, a major reason I, I bought the record. And another one was the TV commercial. There was an actual TV commercial for this record. And, I mean, unless I'm going completely out of my mind and I'm just convoluted this up <laughs> in my head, I, I distinctly remember the, the TV commercial. And if, if you're familiar with the album cover, it's kind of a, an interesting mystical. It's just an all-black cover. And there's a woman in the background, and you can only kind of see the shadow of her face a little bit. There's just very low light. And the she's wearing some kind of a wrap that has these stripes running down it. It's a, uh, I don't know if it's orange and white or red and white. I think it's red and white. And it's the commercial was that woman coming through the darkness so you can see her come up front and put her cape in that position that it's on. And then it just steely down Asia. And the music, of course, from the, the record was playing in the background. <laughs> and... Uh, I had to hear more. I was interested. You know, Steely Dan's one of these bands that's kind of different from every other band that they played with. Uh, a lot of their personnel came from different areas. Uh, you, had, you know, the two main guys, Walter Becker and Donald Fagan, who I think that uh, the more you get to know, the more you realize they're kind of oddballs, but they're just talented. They're really brilliant musicians and writers. Uh, the If you look at the personnel that played on the Asia record, you'd really come to realize that this isn't so much of a rock and roll album as it is a more of a fusion record. Most of the musicians are jazz musicians. And uh, it's just a very interesting, unique sound. Some really, really good songs with pop sensibilities, yet the, the chord progressions in the music comes more from the jazz end and kind of a fusion from the jazz and the rock. It's, it's just really interesting to listen to. And it's one of those records that, it's, it's another one, you know, when I mentioned it in, the, in my list, I remember Danny responding back that Asia was one of his go-to records. And that's the type of record it is. It's one of those, you know, you just kind of sit kicking back one day and you, you're not in the mood to watch TV uh, and you want to put a CD in. And, and that's one of the ones that you kind of gravitate toward just because it's just got that kind of a sound to it. Anyway, the, the song I'm going to play for you is uh, a relatively long one. They made a, they made a shortened version of this song for the radio, but I don't mess around with edited versions, folks. This is the full-length version of Deacon Blues.
impeccable musicianship and lyrics that make you stop, listen, and think without being a burden. Just terrific, easy listening music. Steely Dan, Asia. Great record. I do recall a little poking around that used to go on. The, the last song on the on the Asia record is called Josie, and I had an Aunt Josie who lived two doors away from me in the back alleyway, and I vaguely recall some poking around with that. And, and also Peg. There was a Peg floating around. Danny, was that your aunt or cousin or something like that? I remember those two songs. We used to kind of poke around with those two things because those are the kind of things we did back in the day is poke around. <laughs> and you see how innovative and cutting edge we were? Now Facebook is all the rage and what do you do on Facebook? You poke. And with that we come to the last record we're going to talk about here in part two and that's Bat Out of Hell by Meatloaf. There are so many interesting things about this Bat Out of Hell record that I could... <laughs> I don't know, I want to try not to talk for 10 minutes on it. Most of the songs are 10 minutes long. One of the things about this record that's interesting is that the title of the album is Meat Loaf, Bat Out of Hell, but if you, if you look at the album cover, or the CD cover, whichever one you have, you'll notice it says Songs by Jim Steinman. Jim Steinman is a really unusual guy, and we're not going to get into him too much. Most of the success, commercial success, that Meat Loaf had were... Uh, his recordings of Jim Steinman's songs. Steinman's also recorded, uh, excuse me, Steinman's songs have been recorded by acts such as Celine Dion, Barry Manilow, Bonnie Tyler, and others. They have a very distinct sound. Usually if you're listening to a song that was composed by Jim Steinman, you know it's a Jim Steinman song. The other interesting things about this album that, that were captivating to me was the cast of players and, and producer on it. And Todd Rundgren not only produced the record, he engineered and mixed it. And Todd Rundgren's one of my favorite musicians ever. Some of the players on the record, Todd Rundgren plays guitar on most of it. A lot of the musicians that were part of Todd Rundgren's band, Utopia, such as Kazim Sultan, Willie Wilcox, Roger Powell played on it. The professor, Roy Bitten, uh, uh, played pianos and, and keyboards on the record. And Mighty Max Weinberg played drums on a couple of the tracks. They were both from, of course, Bruce Springsteen's E Street Band. Edgar Winter played saxophone on several of the tracks. Something else that was really interesting is that one of the most recognizable songs from this record was Paradise by the Dashboard Light. If you were to think back now, someone just said, oh yeah, that, that song was huge, it was huge. The interesting thing is it, it only peaked at number 39 on the Billboard Singles Chart. But that actually is quite an extraordinary accomplishment because while the record on, on the album itself, the song is about eight and a half minutes, the single was only edited down to seven minutes and 55 seconds. And we're talking about a music business where the typical single, they like to keep it in, the, in that three-minute range. So for, that, for the music industry to release a single that was nearly eight minutes long and for it to get the radio play that it did, I think was quite impressive. The sustainability of this record is also pretty impressive. And... I don't mean just in the marketplace, where it has sold an average of over 200,000 copies a year, uh, and is something like the fifth best-selling album of all time in the U.S. I don't know if that's U.S. or worldwide, but that's not what this is all about. But like in the marketplace, it, it has sustainability. It does so, in, in, at least in my musical listening. <laughs> so much for English, huh? Anyway, it, it, it's, you still listen to these songs, and, and they take you back to a time, 
But they still hold up. They're songs that hold up. You don't listen to it and say, hey, that's dated. You, you listen to it and say, hey, that's a great song. I want to listen to it. And of course, if you're uh, at a party with your friends, any, any group of friends in the 30-some-odd years since its release, because we all have several groups of friends in that period of time, but this song happens to come on, there's always a sing-along. If there's a karaoke machine nearby, somehow it finds its way on. And all the boys and girls split up and sing the particular parts. Boys and girls, what am I, six? <laughs> well, you've been listening to the title track in the background as I've been babbling on. <laughs> I am going to play you a full song without me saying a word. And that's how we're going to close part two of the podcast. This is You Took the Words Right Out of My Mouth. Before I play it, I just want to say thank you all for listening to part two. I hope you enjoyed it. And part three is coming soon. Part three is going to feature the Beastie Boys, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, Pink Floyd, Iron Maiden, and Rockpile. But until then, we'll see you soon. Peace. On a hot summer night, would you offer your throat to the wolf with the red roses? Will he offer me his mouth? Yes. Will he offer me his teeth? Yes. Will he offer me his jaws? Yes. Will he offer me his hunger? Yes. Again, will he offer me his hunger? Yes. And will he starve without me? Yes. Then does he love me? Yes. Yes. On a hot summer night, would you offer your throat to the wolf with the red roses? Yes. I bet you say that to all the boys.
Yeah, 